Hello and welcome to this edition of Café Klingendal. My name is Rem Korteweg and I'm joined here today with Erwin van Veen, Senior Research Fellow at the Klingendal Institute, specifically focusing on conflict research. And Erwin, you've just returned from Israel and the Palestinian territories, and I'm very keen to talk to you today about the current state of play in the Middle East peace process, and to get your assessment about what is happening now and what are possible future steps, and what the European Union may be able to do. So how do you view the current state of the Middle East peace process? Well, Rem, first of all, thanks for having me here today. Um, I think the summary is pretty simple in the sense that at the moment there is obviously no peace, there is no process, and on the basis of my recent visits, I would also argue that there is very little prospect for peace in the immediate future. Uh, and one of the main reasons for that is that the current Israeli government has expressed absolutely no intention of working towards uh, a negotiated uh, resolution of the conflict on a basis that might be acceptable for both parties. Obviously, we have a new U.S. president. Donald Trump was only uh, in office for a number of days, and then he already announced that he would make the Middle East peace process one of his key ambitions. Has that changed the dynamic in any way? Not, not as far as I can see. I mean, this peace plan is, is one of these topics uh, or the U.S. intervention that everybody speaks about, but you see very little uh, happening uh, on the ground in terms of uh, conversations that lead to the identification of solutions, maybe preparing popular opinion for difficult and painful concessions that need to be made. Uh, in fact, you see the contrary, that the Israeli political establishment in power has basically ditched the two-state solution as it was envisaged by the Oslo Accords and, and starts talking more about sort of a two-state minus or a one-and-a-half-state uh, type of solution, which means, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more autonomy for the Palestinians, but under an Israeli security umbrella and with far-reaching Israeli possibilities for intervention in the West Bank in particular. Erwin, what, what are the obstacles to get to a two-state solution? Well, in my opinion, the, the two-state solution has become a bit of a facade for the real issues that lie uh, behind it. And, and there are at least five of them that, that need much more thoughtful reflection and action if you really want to come to a resolution of the conflict. And they're not at the same order of magnitude. So comparatively speaking, the simplest problem is, is the dysfunction of the Palestinian Authority. So that's the Palestinian government, basically. Then around that, there is a circle around the divisions between the different Palestinian political parties, right? Hamas and Fatah in particular. As long as they cannot form a united front, it will be very difficult to achieve peace. Around that, and even more important, is of course the permanent state of occupation of a significant part of the West Bank that is maintained by the Israelis, and which means that a significant part of the land in particular is under Israeli military jurisdiction which makes their life very hard for the Palestinians on a, on a daily basis. But even on top of that, there is such a divergence in narratives and in beliefs about what has happened in those past, let's say, 100 years of conflict, um, that people have really such a divergent perception that it's very difficult to start a conversation about solutions if they don't even agree what the problems are. And to top it all off, of course, the context of the conflict had just changed significantly. Yeah? The Middle East is, is ablaze in a number mm. of conflicts that have taken much of the attention of the global community, but also sort of refocused the attention of both Israelis and Palestinians, uh, in particular in the security domain. 
What are the key drivers you think in the region that are now impacting on the ability whether or not to achieve a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you can look at it at a different level. So one most superficially there is simply less political attention and bandwidth for dealing with Israeli political conflict on, let's say, the part of the EU, the US, etc. That's because of the civil war in Syria, the civil war in Iraq, in Yemen, the situation in Turkey. And these are all much more important at the moment uh, in the eyes of the global community, in, in any case, uh, than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Then the thing that hasn't changed, of course, is, is one layer deeper, is the fact that the U.S. is basically an all-weather friend of, of Israel, right? So throughout most U.S. administrations, there has been rock-solid support for Israeli government policy and Israeli government policy since at least 2000 is not oriented towards peace in the sense that the Oslo Accords uh, envisaged it. But underneath that, I think, is even a more profound shift that Israel has gone on an international charm and alliance-building offensive uh, over the past couple of years in Africa, in Asia, uh, with India, for example. Um, it has also struck up new informal alliances with the Gulf countries, um, and that has been facilitated by changes in that regional context, uh, radicalization, terrorism, security, Iran. Uh, whereas the Palestinians have basically lost a lot of their traditional friends. The G77 is not as powerful anymore as it used to be. Jordan and Egypt have cut their own deals with Egypt. And even the reliable financiers from the Gulf, so the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qataris, they find themselves in a different environment eh, where the Iranian-Saudi competition is dominant. Israel is an important potential partner in that conflict. So. I would say that Israel has done a pretty effective job in, in sort of building new alliances and polishing its global image. And the Palestinians have, have basically pursued a very legalistic strategy of becoming member of international treaties, organizations, etc., but have failed to maintain sort of the diplomatic goodwill towards their cause. And now they find themselves a bit in a situation where other theaters of conflict uh, take center stage uh, and they pay the price for that, in a sense. Zooming in a little bit on what's happening inside the Palestinian territories, the Israelis oftentimes say, look, there's a divide between Fatah and Hamas. We don't necessarily know if we do a deal with, uh, with President Abbas that he can also deliver. What are the prospects for reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas? Well, the good news, I think, is that it's not... It doesn't seem to be ideological. There's been quite a lot of research in this. Huh? People who've, who've really looked at the motivations behind the competition between Fatah and Hamas. And it is more based on a desire to hold on to power, basically, huh? or to increase their relative share of power. Uh, power in the sense of, you know, being in charge of uh, sort of government-type uh, responsibilities that run part of the Palestinian territories. So it, this is not as much about ideology as many make it out to be. So that means that there is scope for more practical compromise, right? So that, that governments of the national union, power sharing arrangements, these sort of things uh, might actually be contemplated. The complication, of course, is that this split has endured for about 10 years now. So the vested interests on each side are quite significant. And, and there will be a need for, for not just creative solutions, but also for money. Uh, and to give you an example, I mean, Hamas has, of course, set up its own governance structures in Gaza, its own security services, etc. So any deal uh, that forms a national government will require these people to be brought on the payroll of the Palestinian Authority, most likely. 
which has no money. Right? So this is, for example, a practical contribution that if the international community is convinced of the wisdom of such a scheme, uh, would have to put up uh, a significant amount of cash. What gives hope, I think, is the fact that the entire Hamas leadership has recently changed. Mm -hmm. So they're now all from Gaza and they live in Gaza. And that, of course, uh, you know, brings them closer, I think, to the real situation in Gaza, which is, which is not good. Uh, and might uh, induce them to the greater compromise that is needed. And the second thing is that, that I think in the current leadership constellation of the Palestinian Authority, specifically as long as President Abbas is in power, I don't see much changing. Um, but there is a lot of debate going on in the West Bank about his succession one way or the other, and that might open the second door. That might lead to at least some sort of functional bridge of that divide. So what happens next? Well, if I knew that, I guess um, I might not be sitting here, but it's, uh, it's a good question in terms of uh, what might happen next in terms of possible scenarios. And there I can see sort of three main routes that might shift some of the parameters that, that now block or that make any discussion about uh, concrete solutions a fairly useless endeavor. I think one would be if the, if the Palestinian political establishment managed to get its act together. Uh, so that means resolving the Hamas-Fatah split, but also many of the splits that exist within Fatah and sort of um, separating the roles of Fatah, the PLO and uh, the Palestinian Authority. Then they could finally pursue a integrated, coherent diplomatic political strategy towards the international community that is focused on full recognition of Palestine as a state, potentially pursuing uh, some files in front of the International Criminal Court um, and engage in a much more eff effective public awareness campaign about what's really going on in the Palestinian territories. A second route, I think, is through the significant pro-peace, sort of more grassroots forces that still exist, right? On both sides, there is still about 40 to 50% of the population that feel that the negotiated two-state solution is the best way forward. Problem is that there are latent majorities, or minorities actually, that don't really believe that it's possible to get to a negotiated solution. So what is the way to empower them? And one of the ways to empower them is, I think, to uh, support at much greater scale the civil society organizations that exist on both sides, who, who basically make people-to-people -people contacts possible, right? Israeli activists who stand up for Palestinian villages in Area C of the West Bank and these sort of things. And this creates the sort of the social connective tissue, right, that will ultimately help have a different political conversation because by exposing people to each other, you change the way they think about each other. It sounds a bit fluffy, but it will have to be done at scale uh, mm. and really contact needs to be re-established uh, in the face of things like the West Bank uh, barrier. And then third, of course, the international community could put much greater pressure on the conflict parties if it wanted to, in particular to abide by international law. And this is mainly a problem for Israel, uh, of course, because the occupation of the West Bank, uh, in particular in East Jerusalem, is, is considered illegal under international law. But there is no, um, there's no pressure. And mm -hmm. this has been established in various uh, UN Security Council's uh, advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice. But there is no follow through. And if the, the West, the US and the EU would say, listen, um, you know, as long as you are in this state of uh, violation, there are going to be consequences X, Y and Z that would change the power imbalance that currently makes the pursuit of a solution very difficult. So let's look at the European Union for a minute. 
What other avenues do you think that the EU could pursue in terms of making that point that international law needs to be respected? Well, very concretely, I think the EU is a rule-based organization, right? So, so it's basically it operates uh, at least on the face of it by by its own rules, regulations, sort of a more rule of law type approach. Um, that's always been characteristic for for everything from the internal market to uh, so accession negotiations. So, it should do a very careful review of where Israel by violating international law. And the Palestinians as well, by the way, but that different category of actions, I think, um, and then draw consequences from that. Yeah, so, it, for example, the European Council for Foreign Relations did a good paper recently where they basically inventory what these violations of international law mean for conclusions that you should draw in the context of various uh, initiatives and support schemes with Israel uh, on the economic level, uh, scientific exchanges, and those sort of things. Uh, and be consistent, mm. uh, because that would give a consistent signal to the Israeli government that this kind of behavior is not acceptable. What we need to be careful with there, I think, is that it doesn't become sort of a prohibition or something like that of everything Israeli, right? So this really has to focus on the Israeli government, because they're the ones who hold the keys to the resolution of this conflict. And in Israeli society, of course, there are many pro-peace forces who are as disgusted with the current situation as many others. Um, and they need to be empowered, of course, not blocked out. If you could advise Federica Mogherini <laughs> to take three or perhaps more measures, what would they be? Well, I would say three things. There, there need to be much greater pressure on the parties to comply with international law. And this is mainly to do with Israel and is mainly to do with the prolonged occupation uh, of the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Uh, second, there needs to be support at scale for pro-peace organizations at both sides of the divide. So mostly civil society organizations. And that is to counterbalance the conscious policy on the Israeli side of physical and, and regulatory separation of Israelis and Palestinians. And the repression of civil society that we've been seeing by the Palestinian Authority. Third, um, you know, this notion that Hamas is only a terrorist organization and therefore we should not talk to it, that needs to go. Uh, you cannot solve conflicts by not talking to key parties involved. And these conversations obviously don't mean that you agree with the ideology of the party you talk to or that you commit to anything. But without talking, uh, you, you know for sure that these type of conflict resolution efforts are going to fail. So these three things, I think, would be a sound starting point. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Erwin van Veen, Senior Research Fellow at Klingendal's Conflict Research Unit. Fascinating to talk to you. I'm sure this is a topic that we will return to in the near future at Café Klingendal. If you are interested in staying up to date on Café Klingendal, please subscribe to our newsletter at www.klingendal.org.